All right, good morning. So glad, oh, need the bell one more time. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Patrick Egan. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and then we'll dive into St. Andrew. Um, I am Dean of the Upper School at Clapham School. We're housed in College Church right across the street from Wheaton College in their education wing. We're a small classical Christian school. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I teach New Testament uh, in their South Campus, which is their lesser known location. Um, five years ago, we lived here, we attended here, and then we went away to St. Louis for five years, and now we're back and reacclimating to life here in Wheaton. It's about 10 degrees colder than here on a daily basis, um, but there are warm people around that makes it wonderful to be back. Um, St. Andrew is uh, a personal connection for us. Uh, when Matthew had opened up uh, for people to sign up for saints, uh, there were two in particular that I wanted to do because we lived in both Scotland and in England. And so I thought, Andrew and George. It makes total sense. So we're doing Andrew today, and we'll do George in the spring. Um, November 30th is the feast day of St. Andrew, St. Andrew's Day in Scotland. Uh, because of the Thanksgiving holiday, we've pushed it up a week, uh, but you get a whole week then to contemplate Andrew. Uh, maybe you can go find some haggis and have that in an evening. Um, they will celebrate it in Scotland actually the Monday, uh, the 2nd. Um, so first for today, we'll trace how did Andrew become the patron saint of Scotland? What's that history? Does that history connect to us as Anglicans in some way? Um, and then we'll actually go back into the Middle Ages and look at a rather interesting tale of Andrew that was told in the style of um, Beowulf. So first we'll do history, then we'll do literature. All right, so let me tell you a bit about our personal connection. I and my family lived in St. Andrews, Scotland. Um, our connection with St. Andrew came uh, for the three years that we lived in St. Andrews, um, studying for a PhD. Uh, you can see here the ruins of St. Andrews Cathedral and then uh, St. Mary's College where the Divinity School is housed as part of the university. Uh, we arrived in St. Andrews with three daughters. Uh, we added a son before we, we came back, named him Cameron, good Scottish name. Um, uh, we loved our tea and biscuits. Uh, you'll notice that as Kristen framed her Scottish pottery mug, uh, she also uh, brought in the Scottish uh, biscuits uh, shortbread in the shape of Andrew's cross. So she was really thinking ahead to the bringing all of the themes together in her well-framed picture there. So who was St. Andrew? 
Uh, Andrew, uh, the apostle, uh, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was a disciple, um, the first disciple, the first called, um, a brother of Simon Peter, uh, perhaps the older brother of Simon Peter. Um, this is somewhat conjecture. Because he was the first called, was he the firstborn? Uh, he seems to be a much more responsible, quiet, introspective individual. Peter is much more rambunctious and aggressive out there. Uh, so the responsibility-taking child seems to be, if you're into that whole birth order thing, Andrew. Um, both Simon, Peter, and Andrew are from a prominent fishing family, the Barjona family. Um, they seem to have been a fairly successful fishing family. The call to leave their nets to follow Jesus seems to have had some weight to it. They were giving up something substantial in order to take on that risk of following Jesus to become fishers of men. Most of what we know about Andrew comes from the Gospel of John. He's fairly anonymous in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, so we learn about Andrew that he was a disciple of John the Baptist in John 140, um, and that he uh, is perhaps encouraged by John the Baptist to go find Jesus, to uh, follow now a new discipler. Um, he's called to be Jesus' disciple along with his brother, but he was first. Uh, the, uh, the author of the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple, likes to play around with Peter in his Gospel. So Andrew is called first. At the end of the story, uh, when the resurrection happens and, and the women come back from the empty tomb, there's a foot race between the beloved disciple and Peter, and the beloved disciple gets there first, he wins the race, but then he lets Peter go first, uh, kind of showing off that he was faster than Peter. And so the gospel writer of John seems to have some connection with Andrew that's unique, or at least uh, is bringing out some special aspects of Andrew. Um, and Andrew places, uh, John places Andrew in the inner circle. In the synoptics, it feels like there's three main people in that inner circle, Peter, James, and John. But Andrew seems to be right there alongside those three as well. Uh, we also learn, and this is depicted in the artwork of the book we're going through, um, in the three synoptics, the feeding of the 5,000, the bread and fish are just brought forward. Uh, but John gives us that insight that Andrew is the one who uh, scoped out the lad who had this food, and then Jesus multiplies all of that. Uh, so we gain some insight from the New Testament, particularly from John, about the life of Andrew in the New Testament. So what happened after the New Testament? According to the Acts of Andrew, and, um, Andrew went to Achaia in Greece uh, to minister the gospel there. Um, you can vaguely see Greece down here. Uh, the part 
where you have like this hand shape, Achaia is up here and the very top of that largest island where Sparta is, is where, um, where he would have ministered in Achaia. Uh, let's see, where am I in my notes? Um, according to Eusebius, he then went on to Scythia, which is, let me get this right, which is up here, north of the Black Sea. This accords with what is called the Russian Primary Chronicle or the Chronicle of Nestor, which traces the origin of the Russian Church or the Russian Orthodox Church. Scythia corresponds roughly to present-day Ukraine, the region north of the Black Sea. Uh, there's some debate about the manner of Andrew's death. Uh, he was crucified, um, but we don't know what kind of cross. Was it the normal Latin cross? This is depicted in some artwork, like Caravaggio's got this normal Latin cross. But a tradition emerged, and this is most prominent in the uh, art tradition, of depicting him on a crux decusata, or the X-shaped cross, otherwise known as the saltier. And so uh, we can see some artwork. Here's a print from the uh, Nuremberg Chronicle, 1493, where you have the X-shaped cross, and he's tied to it instead of nailed to it. About 100 years later, we have uh, Artis Wolfart showing Andrew at study, although he seems to be a bit sleepy, reading his, it looks to be Hebrew here, um, and seemingly about to write um, with his quill and scroll here. Um, the artist has done some interesting things here. Uh, here we can show there's this X-shaped cross made very prominent white uh, in front of him, but over his shoulder there's some wood behind him, and maybe you can see the wood grain makes this X shape ominously over his shoulder. So as he's sleepy, studying, he has all of these signs around him of his impending future, his sacrifice in his allegiance and discipleship to Christ. Well, um, we can ask this question then. How did Andrew become associated with Scotland? Well, around the year um, 345, Saint Rule or Saint Regulus uh, had to flee Patras, which is in Achaia, the main city uh, of Achaia, um, and he brought with him uh, several bones of Saint Andrew, his kneecap, humerus, three fingers, and a tooth. And he carried these on a boat uh, from, so it would have gone across the Mediterranean Sea out into the Atlantic Ocean, and it's said that he encountered a storm, got blown off course, and eventually landed in the North Sea on this peninsula in Scotland, a place called Kilrymont, which because those bones were landed on land, they soon changed the name to St. Andrews. So having the bones of St. Andrews <clears throat> is the first reason why 
Andrew becomes the patron saint of Scotland. But there's another event. You may recall Emperor Aug, uh, Constantine in 312, the, um, the Battle of Milvian Bridge, where he sees the cross in the sky. And if you uh, battle under this sign, you will have victory. Well, King Angus McFergus had a very similar experience as he uh, is a Pictish king doing battle to the Scots. And so the Picts uh, at this time were Christians battling uh, a pagan Scottish clan. And so the Picts under Angus McFergus prepared to battle King Athelstane in 832. St. Andrew appeared to Angus in a dream and promised victory. During the battle, the saltier cross appeared in the sky over the battle. Athelstane was killed. And in gratitude for the victory, Angus gave gifts to the church of St. Regulus at St. Andrews and ordered the cross of St. Andrews of St. Andrew to be the badge of the Picts and the Scots, this new combined nation. This legend, with its similarities to Constantine, uh, gives us a sense of how the symbology of Christianity was being utilized in these Middle Ages to uh, be these badges of honor, to be these flags and emblems that they would march under as they're uh, bringing together notions of uh, Christian virtue and valor in the face of pagan opposition. So as they're taking the gospel to these foreign lands, they're conflating military endeavor, uh, statesmanship, and Christian symbology. Uh, we'll bring that into thematically a lot of what we're talking about today. Uh, but I want to continue our history of Scotland. Uh, this is the Scottish flag, the saltier. Uh, the blue background depicting the beautiful skies of Scotland and the white St. Andrew's cross uh, mirroring the imagery uh, that we've seen in artwork. So the sign in the sky becomes depicted in the flag of Scotland. So during the Middle Ages, this struggle to establish Christianity met with consistent and violent resistance throughout the British Isles. We've heard about this from some of the saints that we've talked about, who uh, many of them, the ladies, who are trying to convince uh, royalty to adopt Christianity and they struggle to do so. Uh, this is similar to a lot of those stories, trying to contest an entrenched pagan culture in the British Isles. We're going to fast forward a bit more to a time when Christ the Christian environment uh, is well established. We can think of Christendom, uh, but the struggles to understand the faith and what that means in terms of statemanship um, meet new ideas, uh, a new uh, endeavor to understand our scriptures and the theology that comes from, from this. Uh, Scotland takes a central role in the Reformation. 
Um, we see here, this is at uh, the, um, I forget which college, uh, at Edinburgh, the University of Edinburgh. Uh, here's John Knox preaching with his arm raised. Uh, we have this conflict between Catholicism and Protestantism uh, that erupts in continental Europe but spreads northward into England and Scotland. Uh, the English travel up to the lowlands. So if you can picture uh, Scotland being the cap on the vial of England, the part that's closest to England is the lowlands and the mountainous highlands uh, cut across uh, northern and western Scotland. So it was the lowlands that were most influenced by the English. They also, that's also where the most prominent cities are, like Glasgow and Edinburgh, the places of influence over all of Scotland. And so however those towns went, Scotland would go. Um, and so the English are influencing those locations. Um, as Protestant ideas, Lutheran and Calvinistic ideas travel up to Scotland, you have these people who start preaching uh, this new understanding of Christianity. And two of these people, Patrick Hamilton and George Wishart, are martyred at the stake. They're burned at the stake. If you walk around St. Andrews, there are these places in town that mark the locations where they were burned at the stake. One of them is right next to a curb and there's often cars parked over it. And so you take your parents there to show them where George Wishart was sacrificed, but it's, you know, there's a, a, a Mini Cooper over it. And it, no, really, it's under there. So, um, so we have these martyrs for the Scottish Reformation, these Protestant ideas spreading throughout the lowlands. The martyrdoms attract the attention of people, and you get more and more adherence to these Protestant ideas. Well, what happens is the person behind the martyrdoms, Cardinal David Beaton, um, is, resides in this castle. That's his home. And the Protestants, in response to these martyrdoms, uh, are now going to go get Cardinal Beaton. And Cardinal Beaton is beaten. He's murdered in his own castle. And uh, the Protestants uh, all move into the castle and they reside there for a spell. The Catholics, who are upset that their cardinal has been beaten, uh, now lay siege to this castle. And for 18 months, the Protestants are holed up within there. Uh, and the Catholics are outside laying siege to them. There's this long alliance between the Scots and the French. And so the Scottish, the old alliance, it's called A-U-L-D, uh, the old alliance is called upon and these French ships come into the North Sea and they bombard the castle. And so these are the ruins of the castle. You can see uh, the, the sea over 
there where the French ships would have come in, fired their cannons into the castle. And many of the Protestants died in that, but some of them escaped but were captured. One of the individuals captured was John Knox. And when he was captured, he was forced to serve as a slave in the galley of a French ship. That French ship sailed around Europe, landed him on the continent. He was able to free himself, and then he spent a considerable amount of time in Calvin's Geneva, learning from Calvin. Uh, ten years, a little, little under ten years after being captured, he returns to Scotland in 1555, preaching in Edinburgh and in St. Andrews, this reformed faith. And he is very influential. Here's a, a um, I don't know, it's kind of a waxy statue of him in this uh, museum that uh, here's the, you can see the ruins here. Over here, there's a little building that is a museum. And in that museum, you now have this, John Knox preaching. <laughs> he, this had been destroyed because he was holed up inside. And now they have a, this uh, fiery brimstone preacher uh, on the same property. So, the Scottish Highlands remained Catholic for a very long time, but the Lowlands became Protestant. In uh, 1560, um, there was a, a, Scot or, yeah, a Scottish Protestant parliament that held um, office in Edinburgh. And at that time, in 1560, they made Calvinism the law of the land. And so Scotland, because of this legislation, became a Protestant nation. Calvinism becomes the law of the land. It defeats Catholicism. Catholicism, even if by population was in the majority, it was the minority position. St. Andrew's Castle fell into neglect these are the ruins as they stand today. Um, part of Knox's preaching was this iconoclasm, and they went into the cathedral and they removed all the statuary and all of that, but the building itself remained intact. What ultimately happened is over the next several hundred years, people would just go take stones so that they could build buildings in the rest of the town in um, the mid-1800s, the flourishing of romanticism and old ruins and stuff, they, um, they decided, let's stop destroying this old cathedral and preserve it. And so now it's meticulously preserved to this day. Um, and a monument has been erected uh, to commemorate the martyrs, the Protestant martyrs, um, you guys all know golf, St. Andrew's, the home of golf. Across the street from the golf course, the Royal and Ancient, is this monument. So the religious and secular symbols throughout uh, St. Andrew's are right next to each other. Well, 
the same year that Parliament declared Scotland Protestant, Calvinist, uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was married to the French king. Well, the French king died. Queen Mary comes home to Scotland to take up her throne in Scotland, but she's Catholic. So at the same moment that it's declared Protestant, she comes home. Well, the parliament had enough control to enable her to come back, but to force her to practice her religion privately. So she could remain Catholic, but she couldn't impose her Catholicism on Scotland. Um, this occurs after all of the turmoil that had occurred in England. And so they had learned from England to uh, make your monarchs um, a little more docile, I suppose. Well, they forced her to abdicate seven years later, 1567. She had had a son and heir, James the sixth. He was 13 months old when uh, Queen Mary was forced to abdicate. And he was raised in Regency then, um, a Protestant. So all of these um, aristocratic people in the lowlands who are Protestant now decide to rule Scotland as regents while James the boy is growing up. James uh, eventually rules on his own. Queen Elizabeth, her long reign ends in 1603. She die, dies childless. That ends the Tudor reign, and they have to find an heir. They go, you have to go up into the royal lineage. Henry VIII's lineage has died out, and so they have to go up to Henry VII, and the great-great-grandson of Henry VII is the Scottish king, James VI, and he becomes James I. And we have this union of the crowns, Scotland and England. And because we have the union of the crowns, we now get this union of the flag, a new flag for a new kingdom. Uh, you can see, here's the flag of St. George, the flag of St. Andrew, they become combined in the Union Jack. Um, one of the reasons they needed to do this was when the crowns were unified, you had these two navies that were now the navy of one nation. And the navy would fly one flag, George on top, Andrew on bottom. And then you'd have other ships, Andrew on top, George on the bottom. And it was a symbol of conquering another uh, nation. And uh, so you'd have these brawls between people who were fighting on the same side. And so they elegantly solved this by combining the flags. But notice who's on top in the flag. So George, uh, this will rankle the uh, Scots. Uh, I've put today's Union Jack down here. Um, they will include the Psalter Cross of St. Patrick, the Irish um, saints, pinwheeled on Andrew's cross today. Uh, but for, for ooh, maybe 200, maybe 150 years, um, this is the 
This is the Union Jack. All right, so let's uh, collect our thoughts thus far. Uh, problems to ponder. So how do we reconcile the conception of Christian warfare with geopolitical conflict? Uh, this theme has come up various times as we see signs in the sky. Go and conquer. Um, but states warring with states. Uh, how do we assess intra-Christian conflict? So it wasn't just theological points scored off of each other in the Reformation, but there's actual military conflict that occurs in Europe, in the British Isles. Uh, even uh, when important doctrinal points are at stake, how do we assess that intra-Christian conflict? And maybe this is my own reasoning here. Is there a way for Anglicans to appropriate the Scottish cultural and theological heritage? So I open these up for you. Maybe uh, some thoughts have occurred to you as we've traced through this. Um, the symbology of Christian warfare, I came not to bring peace but the sword, and the peaceable Jesus. It's a weighty question, I know. Jim's work on talking about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, the idea of a pure, perfect side that has all the answers mm. is so untenable mm. when you hear this story. Mm. We know Catholicism had to be the truth the whole time. We know the right winning team going to pick that team or vice versa. Mm. And they're just, I'm not trying to be mealy-mouthed, but there seems a wisdom mm. in trying to find a reconciling position between the two, which is one experiment that we're attempting. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that might be one initial hope. Mm -hmm. I thought about that with the, uh, just the, the flag itself, right. you know, combining Evangelical and high church all over it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, Joel. It seems like uh, our emphasis today on kingship mm. mm -hmm. relates to a problematic view of kingship that has always tried to hold things, mm. you know, to the king separately. Mm -hmm. The kind of kingship we heard about today is one that is. Mm giving itself away and spreading itself out. And it seems to me that these conflicts are so related to this impoverished notion of kingship, yeah. mm -hmm. which is always trying to be exclusive and mm -hmm. pull itself together mm -hmm. versus the kind of kingship that we're really talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I wanted to do with the historical part of what we're do, talking about is problematize warfare and to, to see how um, we have these notions and imagery of warfare as part of the Christian life. Um, 
And I want to turn quickly, knowing that our time draws nigh, to a literary, imaginative approach to warfare in the Christian life. Um, so there's this epic poem, Andreas, the legend of St. Andrew, that's written just after Beowulf is written. Uh, they're both in Old English. Uh, Andreas is about half the size of Beowulf, uh, clearly influenced by it. Both are anonymous. Uh, the Beowulf is written by the Beowulf poet. Cinewulf is an author who wrote some things, and Andreas was bound with other writings of Cinewulf, so they're attributed to him, but probably not him. Beowulf is a Norse hero. He travels to the land of the Danes, defeats the monster Grendel and his mom, later defeats a dragon, but is mortally wounded and dies. Andrew is an apostolic hero. He travels to the land of the Myrmidonians, who are these cannibalistic pagan people. They're imaginary. They're, I looked it up. I couldn't find where Myrmidonia is. Um, he defeats an army of Myrmidonians who are under the influence of the devil. And um, in defeating them, actually converts them to Christianity. So let me tell you, I'll back up a little bit and do more to retell this story. Uh, Matthew, another apostle, is captured by the Myrmidonians. He prays. The Lord says, hey, I will send Andrew. He will rescue you. Andrew is ministering away in pastoral Achaia and enjoying life when he receives this call from the Lord, go rescue Matthew from the Myrmidonians. He's going to have to cross the sea and then rescue Matthew from these cannibals who sacrifice and eat people once a month. So he's got a month to get there. He, he has to undertake this sea crossing, and there's a storm that arises uh, on the scene. Unbeknownst to him, the pilot of the boat is Jesus, disguised, and he asks him all of these questions on the sea journey. Tell me about this most high God that you serve. What do you know about him? And he actually retells the story of the feeding of the 5,000, something Andrew knew about. Uh, puts them, him and his crew asleep. Miraculously, they wind up in the land of Merimedonia at the city wall. He goes in, he rescues Matthew. They wage war. Andrew is captured. He suffers for three days. And, uh, and then there's this council where the devil accuses him. Uh, in the midst of this, he calls for water to come out of the temple rock, this big marble. It floods everybody. Many of the Myrmidonians die. They're humbled. They call on Andrew then to rescue him and that they will serve Andrew's God, they become baptized, they establish a church, they get a bishop, and that's, that's the story. It's really fascinating. What I want to do is look at a few ways in which this medieval author is appropriating the apostle, appropriating the symbols of warfare, and considering how does this relate to the Great Commission. Um, so, Andrew, renowned men, 
were they, the twelve, through all the earth. And leaders bold, brave in battle, warriors of might, when shield and hand the helmet did protect upon the field of fate. So we have this language of warfare, uh, medieval warfare. These are knights errant, the twelve are. And so we have this Christian uh, imagination, the chivalric saints. I have this um, picture here of a knight who is garbed in virtue, and he's fighting against all of these vices. And so it's this notion that these are valiant knights errant going out to battle uh, vices. Um, Straight will I send unto this heathen town Andrew to be thy comfort and defense. This is the Lord speaking to Matthew who's imprisoned. He will release thee from thine enemies. This is the theme of Andreas, redemption from enemies. Just as he can rescue Matthew from the Myrmidonians, can the Myrmidonians themselves be rescued from this paganism? Um, I have time. Uh, so, in that town, this mission was decreed unto the noble champion, that's Andrew. Not abashed in mind was he, but steadfast for the deed. Heroic, hardy-hearted, firm in soul, no skulker from the battle, but prepared for warfare in God's struggle, stout and bold. So we have this notion of the apostle, the knight errant, taking on nobility, he is courageous, the greatest of the classic virtues in the divine struggle. So this Christian imaginative medieval way of seeing things is to see the temporal sphere interacts with that spiritual sphere. When battle is occurring, where is battle occurring is one of the questions they have. Life is short. We're all going to die, is the medieval thinking. Is there more going on than just what we, we see? Now, interjected into the midst of Andreas is this brief interlude where the narrator, about two-thirds of the way through, uh, gives some perspective. And he writes, a wiser man upon the earth than I, that is the author, account myself, must in his heart invent it one who knows from the beginning all the misery which bravely he endured in cruel wars. In this exposition, I believe the author is saying, this is fiction. This is not a real history of Andrew. This is an imaginative enterprise. How do we think about warfare, chivalry, the knight errant, and how do we enter into this space ourselves to imagine what it's like to be chivalric, noble, courageous, carrying out our Christian virtue? So the, this is kind of in the conclusion. The Myrmidonians, they receive true baptism and the covenant of peace, the pledge of glory, God's protecting grace, freedom from punishment, the valiant saint, the craftsman of the king, then bade them build a church and make a temple of the Lord. We have here the con conversion of the, this pagan society, the Myrmidonians. 
And this notion that the Great Commission has this symbolic notion of warfare. So some final thoughts, some things to consider. I, I neglected to put a link to this. It's a public domain document uh, where you can read Andreas on your own. 1,700 lines. It can be done in a day, in an afternoon. Maybe Thanksgiving <laughs> you could do this. Um, but some things to consider. What does it mean to fight the good fight today? When we think about the metaphor of warfare, how does this connect to the Christian life? Thinking about the Christian imagine, imagination today, how do the saints fit into this? What does the hero's journey look like today? These are questions I, I feel the literary approach to considering warfare as a symbolic set of ideas may be helpful for us to ponder. Give us a few moments to consider that if you have some thoughts. Unfortunately, we seem to we cannot consider the symbolic yeah. way of thinking. Mm. We pretty much take it as the literal way to do it. Mm. Yeah. It's hard to think about warfare in a culture where the highest virtue is tolerance. You know, what role does conviction, what role does standing up for truth play when it's all relative? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's extremely uh, relevant in the landscape of. Mm. to capture the hearts and minds. Oh, that's a great point. Uh, but I, don't, yeah. I don't know that I... Uh, it's, it's even more gray, hmm. the, the, the distinguishing line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I would say it's, uh, I'm struck by the paradox of what is it mean to fight the good fight? Mm. It seems to be in light of how the Christians came today. Fight the good fight doesn't mean necessarily to win. It means to die. Mm. Mm. That's really different than a lot of what I think of in a year of nights on battle. Victory, we won. Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's in turning over the sword and just dropping to our knees and begging for mercy. Mm. And that is a very, uh, that's a radical thought then. And I imagine it goes over a lot as well as we can imagine here. I mm. think of just, let's be honest, I'm playing board games with my kids and I don't want to lose. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Well, it's five till. Is that a good time to wrap up? Okay, well, in celebration of St. Andrew, the patron saint of Scotland, um, my wife and I brought some Walker's shortbread for, for us to enjoy. So, All right, so uh, 
Kristen will be in the back. You can grab some while supplies last. <laughs> all right. Thank you so <laughs> yes, much. all right. Thank you.